Section 7 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 Conquest of Britain by the Saxons and Angles, Part 1. In almost complete contrast with the course of things seen in the Teutonic settlements on the continent was the Teutonic conquest of Britain. It was more protracted and gradual, it was more thorough and complete, and it was much less affected by the preceding conditions of life and society in the conquered race. The Teutonic conquerors of Britain came by sea. This of itself distinguished their invasions from the barbarian invasions of Italy, Gaul, and Spain, where whole nations or armies, as great as what were called nations, moved in vast swarms over the plains of Europe, poured across the Danube and the Rhine, or made their way over the Julian and Rhetian Alps into the provinces of the empire. To Britain they came only in such numbers as could be carried in a few ships of no great size, across the North Sea from the fjords of Scandinavia and Denmark, or from the mouths and marshes of the German rivers, the Elba and the Weser. Instead of a great horde led by Alaric or Theodoric, parties and expeditions of adventurers, unconnected with one another, seeking plunder and the excitement of a freebooter's life rather than new homes, visited continually, as they had done under the empire, different points of the eastern and southeastern coast of Britain. When favorable circumstances led them to settle, they still only settled in small and isolated bodies. Once settled, they were fed from their original seats. Smaller bands coalesced into larger ones, and these again grew into separate kingdoms, separately pushing their boundaries against the Britons or against one another, sometimes fused together, sometimes united for a time under the supremacy of one of them. But all this took time. The invaders gained a new fatherland by a series of sporadic conquests. In the long and bitter struggle between English and Welsh, no one battle decided the result of the strife. No one great victory, as so often on the continent, saved the land or delivered it to a new master. The conquerors of Britain, the founders of the English people, came straight across the sea from one small corner in the wilderness of nations, where three obscure tribes, unheeded at the time when the world was full of the name and terror of Goths and Huns, were loosely united in one of the leagues common at the time among the barbarians. Jutes, Angles, and a tribe of old Saxons whose fathers had moved over Europe from east to west till they were stopped by the broad mouth of the Elba and by the bleak and dreary shores of the North Sea, had learned that the ocean, though very terrible, offered a useful war-path to the warriors who dared to trust it. According to our earliest traditions, between 443 and 449, a band of these rovers hovering about the coast, as many other bands had for many years done before them, were invited amid the anarchy left in Britain by the retirement of the Roman legions, to help Romanized Britons against their wilder kinsfolk. What followed was on a small scale the same as that which so often happened on a large one in the empire. 
from allies, the newcomers became invaders, and the first invaders became masters of Kent. The English settlers in Kent were Jutes. Others from the same region followed. A few years later, in 477, a band of Saxons in three ships, we are told, planted themselves on the coast of what they made Sussex. Another band in five ships, landing more to the westward in 495, laid the foundation of the great kingdom of Wessex. On the east coast, Angles and Saxons continued to land, to invade, to occupy, from the Thames to the Wash, from the Wash to the Humber, from the Humber to the Tweed. Then, up the rivers and along the Roman roads, the different bands pushed forward into the interior from the south coast and from the east, with checkered fortune but with unabated stubbornness. They encountered equal stubbornness. The native resistance was of that kind which a weaker but tenacious race offers to a stronger one, unobservant of opportunities, slack and ineffective at critical moments, but obstinate, difficult to extinguish, always ready to revive, and sometimes bursting out into a series of heroic and victorious exploits. The name of King Arthur, whatever historical obscurity hangs about it, has left its indelible marks in our national traditions. Through continued ill fortune with intervals of success, but with general failure, this resistance was protracted and fierce, but it was in vain. The advance of the tide was low but continuous, sometimes arrested but never retreating. Bit by bit, the land was covered. Fragment by fragment of British territory broke away and was swallowed up in the rising flood, which came not in one channel but in many, and from many different sides. The first attempts at occupation by the Jutes in Kent were, according to the English chronicles, about the middle of the fifth century, the years when southern and central Europe were trembling before the terrible king of the Huns. About fifty years later, in the time of Theodoric and Clovis, began the West Saxon advance under the house of Sterdic from Hampshire harbours. In another half-century, while Vandals and Goths were falling before the sword of Belisarius, there was an English kingdom set up in the north in 547, and English settlements on the east coast and along the rivers which run into the North Sea. We see the British boundary driven inwards and forming an irregular semicircle from the Clyde to the Land's End, flanked for a great portion of the line by the English settlements on the east, and broken into and deeply indented by the encroachments of English conquest along the course of the Severn. Another fifty years and the great English kingdom of Northumbria emerges under Ethelfrith in 593, and the line of the British territories is again severed and broken up into separate districts. Then began the second stage of the great change. The converging lines of advance met in the central part of the island. The struggle for new ground began between the English tribes and kingdoms. Wars for dominion were waged by one kingdom against its neighbors, Supremacy, more or less wide and undisputed, was won by personal qualities in one king, was lost by the want of them in another, was exercised for a time, extinguished for a time, transferred from one kingdom to another, as each was the more fortunate in its men, its circumstances, and its wars. 
But this continual alternation of peace and war among the English kingdoms, this perpetual trial of strength, and this fluctuation between subordination and independence, was the process by which the tribes which had been a loose confederacy by the banks of the Eider and the Elba were again to become one nation in England. The centre of power moved from the north through the midland to the south, from Northumbria to Mercia, from Mercia till it became permanently fixed in Wessex. And by that time, three centuries and a half from the first Kentish inroads, by a progress most irregular and turbulent but never interrupted, the English nation had grown into permanent form and character out of the detached bands and tribal settlements and petty kingdoms among which the island was parceled out. It had organized institutions, a language, a spirit of its own which it owed to no foreign source. The new people which had arisen in the West and changed Caesar's name of Britain to Egbert's England was, as has been truly said, the one purely German nation that arose upon the wreck of Rome. But perhaps because so slow and gradual, the English conquest was complete, in a sense in which the Teutonic conquests on the mainland were not. It was the complete displacement of one race by another. How this was done we have but imperfect accounts. We have no such record as we have of the Gothic wars in the Latin writers Erosius and Jornandus, in the Greeks Zosimus and Procopius, and the valuable fragments of reports made by Byzantine envoys and officials. We have no such almost contemporary record, confused and unsatisfactory though it be, as we have of the Frankish conquest in Gregory of Tours. But so much is certain that whereas in the fifth century the language of Britain was Celtic, with an admixture of Latin in the towns where the Romanized population was gathered, in the course of two hundred years Celtic had disappeared, and Latin had been introduced afresh. From the Tamer, the Severn, and the Tweed, a new language purely and unmixedly Teutonic, in structure, genius, and for the most part in its vocabulary, had become the speech of the country, the speech of all freemen, the speech of all but slaves, bondmen, and outlaws, the speech which gave names, if not to the rivers and the hills, or to the great walled cities remaining from the Roman times, yet to all the present divisions of the land, and to all the new settlements of men. The English conquerors, unlike the Gothic and Frankish ones, had not suffered the old population to subsist around them. Saxons and Angles. It is the only way in which the result is to be explained. Carried their conquests to extermination. They slew, they reduced to slavery, or they drove off the former inhabitants. They cleared them away as the Red Indians were cleared away in America. No trace of intermixture appears between the Saxons and the Welsh, who hated one another with the deepest and most irreconcilable hatred. No British names appear among the servants of the English kings. No vestiges survived of British political or social life. Romanized cities, villas, which showed the marbles and mosaics of the south, Welsh hamlets and hill forts, all perished amid sack, fire, and massacre. Some lines of indestructible Roman roads like Watling Street, some massive Roman walls such as the fragments in London, Lincoln, and Kyre Gwent, 
Some anglicized Roman names of cities survive to show who were masters of the land before the English came. End of section 7